Hello and welcome to episode 7 of The Letter to the Americans, this week featuring a reading from J.R. Daniel Kirk's Unlocking Romans, Resurrection and the Justification of God. Resurrection and the Confession of Righteousness in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Having told the people what they are not to do, do not say in your heart, in verse 6, namely, to ask about bringing to pass what is necessary for their salvation, the righteousness from faith, then goes on to tell them what they are to do. But what does it say in verse 8? It is here that Paul, continuing with his Deuteronomy source text, works out the appropriate human response to what God has already done to provide salvation. In Christian preaching, the historical redemptive act is made plain to God's people, demanding a response of confession and faith. What is declared ekpisteus, from the faithfulness of the righteous one, must go forth pistin unto faith, if it is to be effective. The righteousness from faith continues in verse 8 with its positive assertion, citing Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Paul interprets this assertion of the word's nearness with, that is, the word of faith which we proclaim. Rather than the commandment, Deuteronomy's original referent, Paul envisions an actualization of the passage in which it is the message of the gospel, the word of faith that he and other preachers preach, that is close to the people of God. Perhaps the most significant implication of Paul's rereading of the response portion of Deuteronomy 30 is the shift that has taken place in the purpose of the response. Deuteronomy 30 is a statement of how one should act within the people of God. It is a statement about ethics. Baruch and Philo, who are some very intelligent first-century Judean guys, see it as pointing toward wisdom, the good behavior circumscribed by the law that is required for those within the people of God. For Paul, however, Deuteronomy 30 points beyond the Torah to to reception of the good news of God's redemptive action in Christ as the essential condition for participating in ultimate salvation, even for those who are ethnically within the people of God. Thus, his reading not only replaces Torah with the Christ event, but also offers a potentially new way of conceptualizing entry into the people of God. This divergence between Paul and his contemporaries is precisely the point at which Dunn's interpretation, discussed above, falls short. Paul is not articulating a new kind of ethical principle here, but something else entirely, salvation and righteousness through the resurrection and lordship of Jesus. The extent to which this reframing of the law simultaneously reframes the theodicy question or problem of evil cannot be overstated. The resurrection vindication for which many in Israel were hoping is God, as God's seal on their faithfulness to Torah has been given in Paul's reworking of Israel's narrative to the Christ who came down from God. This vindication was not based on adherence to the law. Thus, God's faithfulness to God's people, the identity of that people itself, and the means by which it will be vindicated are all transformed when salvation righteousness comes to rest on a risen Messiah. Romans 10 verse 9 goes on to make explicit the need for individual appropriation of the message of God's work in history. The appropriate response comes from two places in the hearer, mouth and heart, which Paul gets from the words of the righteousness from faith in verse 8. What Paul adds is his post-Christ interpretation, namely that Jesus, the resurrected one, is the Lord, so that the mouth is to confess Jesus is Lord, and that God raised Jesus from the dead. Both elements flow from understanding the gospel as Paul articulated it in one in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, which, as we argued above, indicates that Jesus is inaugurated into the king role of Son of God at his resurrection. This messianic lordship is the content of the Christian confession. 
The heart is to believe, that is, to respond with the faith that the message from faith, even in the mouth of Moses in Deuteronomy 30, is meant to engender, that God raised Jesus from the dead. The eschatological event that defines the gospel and that has given Paul his reading of Deuteronomy 30, 12-14 must be received with belief when it comes to the heart. The objects of faith and confession, Jesus' lordship and his resurrection from the dead, are two sides of the same coin. Throughout Romans, Paul holds these two confessional aspects, lordship and resurrection, in tight connection. In passages where the theology of Jesus' lordship becomes explicit, Dutton concludes, it is clear that the resurrection was understood as the decisive event in his becoming lord. Moreover, we have found ourselves noting again and again over the course of our investigation the connection between resurrection and righteousness or justification. Another such connection appears here as belief in Jesus' resurrection leads to justification. Paul is pinning all hopes for the eschatological future on Jesus' resurrection. And the word eschatological or eschatology means, generally speaking, the fulfillment of God's promises, sometimes referring to the doctrine of the end times, but not necessarily always. You know, eschatological things can be happening now, not necessarily just in the end times. If both of these actions are done, if the mouth confesses and the heart believes, the one who hath so responded in faith will be saved. Paul began chapter 10 with an expression of his desire that the people of Israel be saved. He has now laid out how such salvation might occur. Salvation will come to the remnant of Israel as they respond to the word about the resurrected Christ with faith and confession. The connection between Jesus' resurrection, righteousness, and salvation, often highlighted in our study, should not be ignored here. Although it would be artificially wooden to insist that righteousness and salvation are split in two, the former going with heart belief and the latter with mouth confession, there is yet a particular connection between resurrection and righteousness. It is heart belief in God's raising of Jesus from the dead that leads to righteousness. Is it any wonder, then, that Paul describes his gospel as the power of God in the revelation of righteousness back in chapter 1, verse 16? The power in view is not an abstract concept, but the very power of life over death shown forth in the resurrection of Jesus. As we saw above in chapter 6, Paul sees the resurrection of Jesus displacing the law in the role of the one who gives the righteousness requisite to come through the final judgment and into eschatological salvation. Paul sees a Christological meaning of Christ, referent of Deuteronomy 30, as informing the great question with which he is preoccupied throughout Romans, has God been faithful to his people? The answer is yes, because of what God has done in sending and raising Christ. God has brought about the event to which the law and the prophets bear witness. Paul reinterprets the scriptures of Israel in light of Jesus' resurrection in order to defend his assertion that all people must confess the lordship of the resurrected Christ in order to know the righteousness of God and thus be numbered among God's people. Paul is using his vocabulary of righteousness by faith to describe what is required for salvation, and he is doing so with a particular object of that faith in view, an object of faith that could not be read from Deuteronomy 30 without a Christological resurrection hermeneutic, or method of interpretation. What is to be believed if one is to become righteous is that God raised Jesus from the dead. The force of Paul's argument is an assertion that Israel's pattern of religion has been misunderstood where it has not been taken as witness to the resurrection message he preaches. Moses and the law still uphold the inseparable web of connections among resurrection, justification of humanity, God's righteousness, and final salvation, but Paul now claims that Moses and the law do so by pointing to an end outside themselves. As Paul indicated he would do in 
chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, he has shown how the scriptures of Israel promise God's faithfulness in the resurrected Davidic king slash Lord. Paul's burden is to argue that God has been faithful to his people. From where does Paul derive his conviction of God's faithfulness? From his understanding that God raised Jesus from the dead. Christ is God's provision for the salvation of his people. As Cavan Rowe has argued, though chapters 9 through 11 are, in a sense, rightly said to be theocentric or God-centered, the character and content of Israel's disobedience to the gospel are in fact are in fact Christological. Disbelief in the resurrection of Jesus is rejection of God, as God has stretched out his hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. The Resurrected Lord in 10, 11 to 13. Paul continues his tour de force of Old Testament interpretation as he brings his string of logically grounding sentences to a close in verses 11 to 13 in a context that is once again highly reminiscent of chapter 1, 16 and 17. Paul grounds his statement from verse 10 that faith in Jesus' resurrection leads to righteousness and that confession of Jesus' lordship leads to salvation on a slightly modified citation of Isaiah 28, verse 16. Everyone who believes upon him will not be put to shame. As in 116, it is Paul's assurance that the gospel of faith in Christ leads to righteousness and eschatological salvation that drives him to renounce any possibility of shame before God's judgment seat. Christ, the resurrected Lord, brings righteousness to all who believe. Paul's addition of pas, or all, to the beginning of the Isaiah citation, or everyone, to the beginning of the Isaiah citation creates a precise verbal parallel with all who believe in 116 and 104. Isaiah, then, becomes another scriptural witness to Paul's message of the resurrected Lord. Whether the object of belief in verse 11 is Christ or God, its content is Christological, with special reference to the resurrection. If the object is Christ, the context has established his status as resurrected Lord as the object of faith. If, on the other hand, God is in view, it is, as in chapter 4, God as he has acted in raising Christ from the dead. Isaiah has been transformed by Paul's gospel into a witness of the resurrection faith that Paul is preaching. Romans 10, verses 12 and 13, contains three more gar, which is the Greek word for for or therefore, statements, grounding Paul's universalistic claims for salvation by faith on a gospel confession that transforms Joel into yet another witness of the saving work of God in Christ. Verse 12, again, draws us back to Paul's thesis statement in Romans 1, 16. There Paul explained the phrase, all who believe, as to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In 10, 11 through 12, this universalism is grounded on the idea that there is no difference between Jew and Greek, a unity that itself is grounded on the universal lordship that all are under. What we see in chapter 10 with respect to Jesus is nearly identical to what one sees at the end of chapter 3 with respect to God. The universality of lordship indicates that there is one way of salvation open to all, irrespective of their membership in the Jewish covenant community as such. In chapter 10, we find that the Christian confession of the Lordship of Jesus levels the playing field of humanity such that all are under him, so that all who believe in his resurrection and Lordship can have confidence in God's gift of righteousness and eschatological salvation. These are the very things that Paul longs for his kindred to know, Romans 10, 1-4, the very content of his gospel, blessings that can only be had through faith in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. The confession of Christ, the resurrected Lord, leads Paul to employ Joel 2.32, a verse originally about God, as the final warrant in his argument for Jesus, the resurrected Lord, as God's means of bringing righteousness and salvation to all people. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
This not only links us to the word that must be spoken with the mouth concerning Jesus' lordship, but also addresses the issue of salvation which commands Paul's labors throughout the chapter. As Roe has argued, in addition to its link with chapter 10, 9 through 10, saved reaches back to 10, 1 and implicitly provides an answer of how it is that Israel can, will be saved. Roe goes on to argue, as we have also suggested here, that the links back through Paul's discussion indicate that Paul has reinterpreted the Lord of Joel, which manifestly refers to God in its original context, in terms of Jesus Christ. The hermeneutical shift analyzed by Roe is tremendous. What originally referred to God now refers to Jesus Christ. Paul reinterprets the name of Yahweh in terms of the name of the risen Lord Jesus. As verse 9 suggests, the resurrection of Christ, as it is associated with his lordship overall, gives Paul the hermeneutical leverage necessary to make such an identification. These glimpses into Paul's use of scripture underscore the presenting symptom that drives Paul to wrestle with the question of God's faithfulness to Israel. Not only have those to whom the scriptures were given rejected Jesus as Messiah, but through Paul's apostleship, Gentiles have been brought in without becoming Torah observant. The universalizing moves Paul has made throughout the letter, and here in chapter 10 in particular, respond to this sociological reality that has exacerbated the theodicy problem. Not only has Israel not received Jesus as her Messiah, the Gentiles have received Jesus as the Jewish Messiah and Lord over all. Thus, a significant connotation of these Christological readings of the prophets is that an eschatological salvation that bursts beyond the borders of Israel is, in fact, essential to the righteousness of God. This is how God will both confirm the promises given to Israel and bring in Gentiles to glorify Israel's God. Conclusions In Romans 10, Paul's angst for his people, his explanation of their plight, and his hope for that plight solution are all based on the conviction that the Christ who came down from God is also the resurrected Lord. If Christ is not the resurrected Lord, and hence the goal or point of the law, then righteousness from the law is not a problem, but a God-given gift to be pursued. If Jesus is not the resurrected Lord, then Moses can be left alone, speaking about commandments. If Jesus is not the resurrected Lord, then Isaiah's message can stay pointed squarely at Israel, including Gentiles only insofar as they, too, become faithful Jews. If Jesus is not the resurrected Lord, then Jewish monotheistic conviction rules out a human addressee in Joel 2.32 before the question is even asked. However, given the Christian confession that Jesus is Lord, and the Christian proclamation of the resurrection that draws such a confession forth, Paul finds himself compelled to reinterpret the content of Israel's scriptures and hence the content of Israel's hope for salvation. Here in chapter 10, where Paul is expounding the thesis statement of the letter, we find him vigorously reinterpreting the scriptures of Israel in light of Christ's resurrection. In step with what we have already seen, especially in Romans 1 and 4, chapter 10 holds together Paul's gospel proclamation, the scriptures of Israel, Israel's God, and Jesus' resurrection. The conjunction between his preaching and the scriptures of Israel comes out especially in 10, 8-9, where he reinterprets Deuteronomy 30, 12-14 to refer to his own gospel message. This reinterpretation enables him to draw a line of connection between the gospel he preaches and the provision that God makes for his people in Israel's scriptures. Scripture is, in fact, transformed into a witness to God's work in Christ. Deuteronomy 30 is essential to this project inasmuch as it provides a witness from the law to the specific events articulated in 1, 3-4, the coming and resurrection of Jesus. The other Old Testament scriptures that Paul reinterprets work together to show that the message of the resurrected Christ, as a message accessible to both Jews and Greeks, fulfills the promises of God. 
The message of the resurrected Christ that Paul proclaims indicates that God has been faithful to the promises he made in Scripture. Again, we find Paul's message, and hence his apostleship, defended in the terms he has laid out in 1, 2, through 6. It is a message of the fulfillment of God's promises concerning the resurrected Christ. For this reason, the resurrection functions as the interpretive key to Israel's scriptures in chapter 10. Also, the universality of the lordship inaugurated by the resurrection provides grounds for asserting that Paul's Gentile mission is itself part of God's faithfulness to Israel's scriptures. We must not miss how this discussion of God's righteousness fits into the argument of chapters 9-11. through 11. In chapter 9, Paul uses a limiting definition of Israel and stories from the scripture to show that the current exclusion of some, of some does not mean that God's word has failed, Romans 9, 6-18. The purpose Paul sees behind this is the inclusion of the Gentiles among the people, 9, 19-33, 11, verses 11-16, and 28-32. In the middle of this articulation and interpretation of the problem, Paul steps back in chapter 10 to redefine the righteousness of God itself. Yes, it is inseparable from God's covenant faithfulness to Israel. Yes, it must be in step with the scriptures in which God has made promises to Israel. But the way in which God vindicates himself before his people, and hence before the world, is not through the covenantal continuity found in Torah-keeping or in circumcision, nor is it found by glorifying Israel at the expense of the rest of humanity. Paul shows in Exposition of Deuteronomy 30 what he asserts in 10.4. The goal of the law is not law-keeping, not defining the people of God, not ensuring eschatological vindication, but Christ. It is only on such a reading of Scripture that the Christ event can and does establish the righteousness of God. By showing that God's righteousness consists in just these events, and that salvation comes through responding in a manner that maps onto just these events, Paul has entirely recast this narrative world for the theodicy problem. God is faithful to Israel, to his promises in Scripture, and to his side of the covenant contained in the law of Moses by sending his son and raising him from the dead.